This is the Dominican.net Radio. We want to welcome all of our listeners to This Week in Interview. My name is Thompson Fontaine, and I'll be your host uh, for the next hour as we talk to a very important and interesting gentleman from Dominica, retired Command Sergeant Major Ralph Alcindor. He served with the 101st Airborne Division. He's a veteran of uh, many conflicts in the modern-day era. He served in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Haiti, and in Somalia. And he's joining us live from Atlanta this evening. Let me say welcome to you, Command Sergeant Major. Well, thank you very much, sir. Mr. Fontaine, it's nice hearing your voice and to the listeners of your radio show. I am Command Sergeant Major Ralph Alcindor, retired, of course. And I was born in Grand Bay some 60 years ago. Born Dominican, always loved the United States Army in 1977 and stayed until the year 2005. So During all this time, I did my first deployment was in Desert Shield, Desert Storm, 89.90. Then after it was Somalia, Haiti. Afghanistan and Iraq. It has been very interesting to just come in from Grand Bay and getting the opportunity to serve in the United States Army into all, all these conflicts. I must say to you that it was nice something talking to you during my time in Afghanistan. I think in all the deployments, that was probably one of the tough cookies, as you see. As of today, we are still having problems with Afghanistan. Yes, and, and you know, talking about Afghanistan, in fact, when I, when I interviewed you uh, in 2002, you know, I had just returned from Afghanistan. I was there for about a month, um, but a very different mission. Your mission was in the military. I was there with the IMF um, helping the government set up its, its, the, the money, the currency system for the country. Mm -hmm. And it was a very interesting time, I thought, at the time, but you were there on a, on a very different, different, a different mission. mission. In fact, I must say that the United States Army, I had the largest battalion, aviation battalion, 701st Aviation at Fort Campbell. We had a total of 932 men from 46 CH-47, better known as the Chinooks. And uh, we were the first to go there along with... General Petraeus, he had just become our commander. He was a one-star promotable. Sent us over there. I was the task force command sergeant major. And I will tell you, in Kandahar, I don't know if you visited Kandahar or if you were just in... Where was, did you go to? I was, just, I was just in Kabul. They told us that Kandahar, oh, in Kabul. Kabul. So was just too dangerous. I was, I, I was in Kabul, yes. Where we, were. we were in Kandahar. But it was quite an interesting deployment. Then thereafter, immediately after we returned to Fort Campbell, then we were ordered again to deploy to Iraq. And there I stayed for one year. While I was there, I was very lucky or fortunate to see my son, who then got deployed a few months later. Then that was it. You know, you... I think Iraq was the, was, was, was the tip of everything, and then I approached the age of 55. I said, well, you know, luckily the Army has a rule that at 55, senior non-commissioned officers must retire. But thereafter I retired, they moved the age to 62. Wow. <laughs> 62. I don't think I was ready for that because after I had one year of civilian world, after 28 and a half years in the military, you can imagine, 
life was pretty good and pretty changed. Yes, I can well imagine. Now, um, Commander, you mentioned that you were the task force commander. What exactly does that entail? Task force command sergeant major. In the military, you have the what is called a non-commission officer's corps, and you have the commission officer's corps, and the commission officers are from second lieutenant all the way to general. They are commissioned by the United States um, commander-in-chief, the president. Now, the non-commissioned officers, it starts from Sergeant E-5, then you have your staff sergeant, and it goes up to Command Sergeant Major E-9. This is the highest you could go, and it's only 2% in the Army actually gets to that position. If you are a Command Sergeant Major, then you work with generals, you work with colonels, you become the Sergeant Major of the Army. There's only one. But then you become a Sergeant Major of a brigade, battalion, or you could just be a staff sergeant major. But I was a command sergeant major where I had to command one of the largest aviation battalions, and I'm very happy to be here today, although we did lose quite a few of our troops, both in Iraq and in Afghanistan, especially in Iraq during my time, 2003, 2004. So it's, it's something to talk about. Yes, you know, and, and that's why I thought it would be interesting to, you know, to talk to you because um, I can't imagine what it must, must have felt like to, to be in charge of, of, of those troops and, and having to lose even one of your troops. But you lose, in, it, I, it, I'm it, sure you lost yeah. quite, you know, quite a few of them. It's not an experience I would really want for any of my fellow command sergeants major because I will tell you, when you have to attend different memorial services, especially when we were in Mosul, Iraq, northern Iraq, and I recall in one day we had some seven memorial services to attend. It's not an easy thing. It's also not easy when you remember you saw the young privates come to you, you gave them what is called a reception and counseling and integration counseling, and you see them grow from private to specialist and then to sergeant, and then just to see they burn in a helicopter. Someone who just hailed you and hugged you, so I made you, I'm losing weight. He holds you up, and then a couple of days later to find out that he's one of your soldiers burned in a helicopter, then it's not an easy experience. It's something that definitely has an impact on your psyche, whether you believe it or not. It is a terrible experience, but it's something that you have to deal with because it's war and it's real. Yes, and, I, and I, I can well imagine the tremendous pressure that you were under. But earlier on, you, you mentioned that you, you were in Haiti. Haiti was, was a different kind of... of um was totally different. When we did um, go to Haiti, orders to go to Haiti by then um, President Clinton, that was in 94. I remember traveling on the USS Eisenhower from Norfolk, Virginia, all the way to Haiti. And when we did move in. We had our tents at the airport area. We, our mission was to reinstate Aristide. But I can say to you, we, prior to that time, Haiti went through some turmoil by having a shortage of gasoline. And then you had people bringing in, smuggling in gasoline from nearby the Dominican Republic. And we never saw anything like this before. People smoking and you know, wrong with gasoline. Then the people, they were all it was an experience I could not really digest, knowing that this is in my backyard in the in the Caribbean. The the the, the people, the way they acted, they were just—it was unbelievable, especially the the population. 
Port-au-Prince to talk. We just could not believe. Port-au-Prince then had well over 4 million people out of, I think, about 7 or 8 million, the total population yeah. of Haiti. So you can imagine with uh, an embargo and everybody coming in and sailing and fighting, there was basically no law and order during that time, and that is one of the things that I will never forget. Yes, I can only well imagine how, how difficult um, that was for you. And then you moved um, to Somalia, again, a Somalia, different type of conflict. Somalia was, was before Haiti. Somalia was in... 92, 93. Right, and yes. let me say to you, there is nothing to compare with any deployments, whether it's in Afghanistan, Iraq, with, Haiti, with Somalia. Somalia was a country that was out of control, if you remember how things just got rolled downhill. One of the things I remember seeing the guys sitting on the trunk. One, just a regular car, would have six, seven guys sitting on the trunk, some on the front, and they, they call them technicals. These guys had their machine guns. They had their AK-47. And then you see them in the pickup truck, the same thing. When we did go downtown Mogadishu, the children would come in and they just grab the sunglasses of the, of the GIs. We never understood why the people were, they just care less. You know, life to me, they never really treasured life like we do here in the West. And that was very troubling. I remember one time we were going to Balatwin, that's about 70 miles in, in, in Somalia itself. And there was this guy laying on the side. He had a big gash on his side and all the buddies asking us if we could help. You know, the guy was just blown away with uh, someone did it with an AK-47. We saw people got blown away with landmines where their legs were just totally mutilated. I, I recall that. These are people who know what suffering is, but yet still they live a life that I think they look to die. We would like to live long. We believe in longevity, but to me, the Somalians, they were so desperate, and they, they simply, every building you see was riddled with bullets, and then the roofs were gone. These guys would take the galvanized or the corrugated sheets and... It's just amazing, Thompson. This is one of the things, again, I will not forget at all. My deployment in Somalia, it wasn't long, but it was quite memorable. Yeah, I can, you know, I can just begin to imagine, you know, the kind of suffering and, and degradation that the people of Somalia would have gone through. And I thought at the time it was a quite an interesting mission, you know, to, to kind of bring some... some... It was. Mm-hmm. But then it turned... We to feed. Yeah. I remember when then President Bush, the father... We went on a humanitarian to feed. It was called um, Restore Hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went there to feed, but it turned, it turned out ugly because these guys, they were all broken into clans and they were just fighting for turf. And whoever had the weapons, they would attack and they would attack anyone who tried to stop their mission. So we found ourselves in a, in, a, in a terrible situation. It's a predicament that we had some of our pilots, after they, they got down the pilots, they dragged him in the room. And this is somebody I, I knew very well, because he was from Fort Drum, New York, and that was where I was based, and it was in my aviation battalion. So these are the things, again, that really hits you, and it, it, it gets to your psyche, knowing that you know this individual went out there with him on a good mission to feed people, and there he was killed by the very people you thought were hungry. Instead, they were hungry to really kill us. 
But in the midst of all of that, um, how do you keep your sanity? I mean, is it do you have to fall back on your training? Is it? I mean, what what do you think sustained you most? Especially being being a leader, supposedly the the army has this perception that if you are a CSM, command sergeant major, you are a subject matter expert in our field, which means whether it's combat, whether it's you have to know how to talk to the soldiers. One time I played a role of a chaplain in, in a sense where the soldiers come to you. We've had soldiers who get pregnant in, in, in the theater, such as Iraq or Afghanistan, then we have to counsel them to come to me, got to talk to them, and then we have to send them back to corners, continental United States. However, we were able to, or I was able to compartmentalize my combat skills, my avionics skills, which, of course, I grew up in aviation, doing avionics, electronics, aviation, electronics, and still able to talk with soldiers on a one-to-one basis where you can, where you would have to say, hold, hold one a minute, hold one a minute. Yes, in case you are just joining us, we are talking there to Command Sergeant Major Ralph Alcindor of the United, retired of the United States Army. This is this week in interview. Yeah. Yes, Commander. So, yeah, I, and I, I was saying I was able to compartmentalize my military side of the house with dealing with people on, on a social and, you know, one-to-one basis so as to maintain your sanity because quite easily you can, you can flip, and we've had soldiers with, with all kinds of problems out there, and you can understand. I'm quite sure you're keeping up with the stats with the, with the Iraqi and Afghani vets, what is happening. But... Some soldiers are able to be strong, and some just unable to take it. And it's just the human, it's a human factor. However, being a leader, this is why strong leaders ought to be able to handle just about every situation and be cool and calm as a cucumber, dealing with it. So, I don't know, but there are times even you get flashback. I recall when we first came back from from Iraq. There was a storm in, in Fort Campbell, and I was in my room, and I heard the, the lightning and the thunder, and immediately I jumped, and I go on like I was in position. Uh, even right here in Atlanta, walking with some buddies, and there was a situation, a guy with a pit bull, and there I got into motion, and the guys, they were laughing. But this is what the military does to you if you decide you want to be a soldier and you want to survive. Yes. If you want to stay alive, you've got to learn, you've got to fine-tune your combat skills just about every day, whether you have to go to the field, in field exercises, whether you got to read, but you have to fine-tune your skills as a soldier in order for you to get to the top. But, Commander, I'm kind of curious. Did anything you, you do growing up in Dominica, growing up in, in the village of Grand Bay, going to school at the, at the academy, did any of this in any way prepare you for the role that you had to play? Let me just tell you one of the things, and you can understand why I wind up getting to the top in the military. When I first went to the Virgin Islands in 68, 69, I was 17, 18 years old. I recall then Rhodesia was a breakaway colony in, in the frontline states in South, South Africa. Then we had Mozambique. We had Angola going through its revolution against Portugal. Then we had also, on the other side, we had Mozambique in Africa, right across. And I wanted, as a revolutionary, I listened to Bob Marley, and I left the SMA, I wanted to go to England. But my mind was all about liberation, liberating people. People could be free. 
free to do what they want, choose. And then I wanted to go to Africa, but Thompson, the thing is I did not have the military skills and capability to be a soldier. So I decided I was going to join the Army in St. Thomas, 1969. At that time, Vietnam was at its peak. Nixon was the president. When I did go to the guy upstairs of the post office at the recruiting office, he said, there's no way you can join unless you've got a green card. I even went as fast as to see if I could get someone's birth certificate. <laughs> Thank God it never happened. That is how much I was anxious. I was passionate to go to South Africa and fight. But first, Vietnam, God helped me learn the skills. And then, But as soon as time went by, we saw Africa change, and in 1977, when I did get my green card, I decided, that's it, join the Army. I was sent to Germany. I spent some 12 and a half years over there. At that time, everything in Africa changed. Right. Angola got its independence, and so was Namibia, which was then Southwest Africa. And what was so good about it is that Zimbabwe got liberated after Rhodesia became Zimbabwe with the same Robert Mugabe. I'm not too happy about Robert Mugabe because I'm totally disappointed in, in, in his rule. Yes. In his rule. Yeah. But these were the things that really gave me the, the drive and the passion. I was in Grand Bay and I did a lot of swimming in the ocean. I know the kids don't do what we used to do. We used to go swimming miles out there in the ocean for six, seven hours, swimming with just a coconut or any piece of floating wood. And these are the things that really hardened me. I think it gave us the endurance that I got into the Army and I was able to max my PT test, the physical training test, the two miles do it in where I get 100%. But I really say I credit all this to the lifestyle we had then in Grand Bay in Dominica. I don't know if you remember, in the 60s, you heard of k yes, I I yes. know you're, I'm about 10 years or so older than you or more. Yes, However, sir. we had our times in Dominica, but they were good times. They were mm. good times. It's nothing like what is happening now. We did not know of killing people or even smoking or drinking alcohol. In fact, there was an old taboo I was growing that we thought if an elder lady smokes, then we said she had problems. You never saw the young boys smoke. This was unheard of. It was unreal. So it's a different time. Yes, it is, and and you know, as you as you as you were talking, I, I was just wondering. I mean, you you've kind of seen it all. You've seen the the, the radical change in, in in Africa. You've seen that Africa never lived up to its potential. Um, how would you describe your your yourself now in terms of your of your reaction to it? Are you are you just cynical? Are you are you really um, disturbed? Are you worried? Well, I, I try I try to be a realist, uh, dealing knowing very well that. Africa has gone through so many changes and revolutions, and yet still we still have problems. We, I think it's with all the resources in Africa, as you know, we still have people literally begging and in dirt poverty down there for countries that is so wealthy in resources. Now, why, why I am a little bit kind of, you know, understanding what is happening it's because I understand the human race. When you put a human touch to it, the individuals, and we can just go straight to the Ivory Coast, and I need not mention the other countries in the past before that one that saw people get in power and they don't want to leave. We saw Robert, well, Robert Mugabe, as we speak right now. 
And it seems like something that is in our people. And if you see, unfortunately, we came across a slave in the Atlantic, and we, we see the same thing taking place in the Caribbean. Basically, when people get into power, they, 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 they grab it, they want it, they keep it. Power is like, I don't know, Africa has not changed that much, even though today it's a little more stable than it used to. I don't know if you remember the times when we were having all these revolutions, you know, the colonial decolonization of those colonies, as you know. But nothing much has changed as far as what I expected. I thought Africa would probably be the number one when we think of our countries and the resources they would spend it and develop, have some sustained economy, and we see the difference. We still see other countries, other mighty countries coming in, exploiting. We see a neo-exploitation taking place especially from the giant in Asia, you know, going to Africa. We see all the copper mining, all the... So I am not too happy about what is taking place in Africa, but I think I understand it. I'm trying to be realistic with it, and I understand it. But, but how much, how much of, of what's going on now should we blame on colonialism or should we blame on just the current um, leadership of Africa? I, I don't think we ought to bring colonialism in the equation. It's, it's too late for that now. I think the colonial power, Great Britain and France, they pulled out. They did not really equip their former colonies to, be, to get going. However, I think there was enough time that our people and education and the resources that is at their disposal should enable them to grow more than what they are today. I don't think, I, I hate to think of England because these countries know they have all the problems that we never thought they would have. They exploited us to the core, took all of the, the natural resources and refined it and sell it back six, seven times. We know that, but yet till today they are facing the same problem we all are facing. So uh, I think the days of blaming the, the colonial powers, those days are done. We ought to take responsibility for what we have. It's been time now. This country's been independent over 40, 50 years, and things are very bad over there. Yeah, but what, what do you think about the leadership? So in, in that case, I, I assume you, you are putting the blame squarely on the feet, at the feet of the, of, the, of the leadership of Africa. Exactly, exactly. There is no other. Take, for instance, case in point, Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe was the bread, then Rhodesia was the breadbasket of sub- Sahara, Africa. Mm -hmm. Zimbabwe provided for everyone as far as corn and all the other wheat. And today, Zimbabwe has some hyperinflation that is so high, and we see what Robert Mugabe, simply because one man doesn't want to give up power. There are many educated and talented politicians in Zimbabwe could use and have that country booming. The gold, the diamond, they, it's, it's there, but the people have such a high rate of inflation and, and they lack the basic commodities. Who do we blame? Are we still blaming the West? Are we still, oh, I think the time has come when we ought to put the responsibility where it is, and I think clearly Robert Mugabe has turned out to be a terrible leader for Zimbabwe. You know, any, any leader in this part of the world here in the Caribbean who would want to adopt the qualities will doom to failure. It's doomed to failure. You what, know, do, what do you think? Yes, I agree with you, and, I, and I'm glad that you, you mentioned or you used the example of Zimbabwe, because I think, you know, people believe that a country 
cannot slide or cannot look at what happened to to do with the leadership. I think it's how critical leadership is for any country, particularly countries in the food world. I, I, I totally concur. Now let us let us go close to uh, closer to our home here in the in the West. Take for instance Venezuela. Venezuela is a very rich OPEC country, oil producing country. Yet still things are not good there simply because we have a very bad leadership. Bad management of the country's resources. So you know, I just want to draw parallel lines from Africa moving to to America, this time South America. Now look at the difference. Have a look at the deal. He just changed. This man has done wonders. One who is able to lead, have the masses. You know who I'm talking about, Lulu the Salvo, is it? Oh, yes, Da Silva in Brazil. Da Silva, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, this, this, this gentleman has done great things, and I'm quite sure Brazilians would like to see him come back and be their leader again. Versus Hugo Chavez or Ortega in the leader of the Sandinista. Just, just have a look, and you can see there is one common denominator with the guys who are doomed to fail, is that they learn how to squander their money, their resources, and also they try to manipulate court systems. Look, look, if you, right now, Chavez is ruling for the next 18 months by some kind of decree that gives him power to do whatever you want. There are many leaders who have the appetite in the Caribbean to do that. Right, they just not. got their hands tied at this time, but sooner or later they may try to legislate. They may want to deal with their cronies and see how they can manipulate the very legislative process. Right, and one thing also I, I notice with all of these leaders is that is this insatiable appetite to stay in power. And they do all of those things to, to, that, to that end, to simply remain in power as long as they possibly can. Definitely. That, that, that's the end result. And they will do it by any means. By any means. That is to take care of the defense. You will see that they're eager to have weapons. They will arm their men to the teeth because they will do anything at all costs to retain that power they do not want to give. Even though they will put their own in through a democratic process, they will try to circumvent that process whichever way they want, whether it's in ballot rigging or whether it's in messing with the electoral process. Whatever way they can, they will do anything to stay in power. And all we have to do is to go back and look at history. It keeps on repeating itself again and again. Yes, you're absolutely correct. And in case you're just joining us, we are talking there to retired Command Sergeant Major Ralph Alcindo, originally from Grand Bay, who served uh, as a highest enlisted officer in the United States military, uh, doing stints in Afghanistan, Iraq, Haiti, and Somalia. We're discussing conflict, we're discussing the world, we're discussing Africa, and of course, we're discussing politics. And, and um, certain uh, major. I think it's, it, it would be important for us to to talk since we're talking about the the desire for people to to um to hold on the power at, at all costs. Um, can you draw any any parallel, or, or do you see any, any lessons for us in Dominica? I I'll tell you, it's very disturbing. Like like I must say again, and I will reiterate that I have no political ambition. To be, uh, in fact, I will never give up my U.S. citizens. So that speaks volume of what I'm trying to say. Dominica, when I compare what Dominica was in the days I was growing, Thompson, take for instance. Let me show you where things are going very wrong 
while the whole world is calling on to tighten the belts because of the economic crisis we're in. In the 60s, Dominica was, Dominica had 81,000 people. I remember very well. At that time, we learned Dominica was 305 square miles. We know now it's 289.9 with about 69,000, 70,000 plus or minus a few. Then Dominica, with its 10 parishes and 81,000 people, had about 11 constituencies, if my memory is right. Yes, 11. In the days of federal. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh-huh. Good. Today, today Dominica has fallen. Now, let me say at that time, Dominica being the third largest former British colony and St. Lucia being the fourth, Dominica had far more people than St. Lucia. Today, Dominica has 69,000 to 70,000, but has 21 constituencies. Big government, big spending, while the, the, the most important sector of the, of the country, the, the, take for instance the agriculture, people complaining that they are not getting the resources or they are not getting the help required. The government has extended itself beyond, and it's a matter of time, you know, that's why the taxes, you hear about fat and all of that. I think Dominica needs to learn, take a page from what is taking place in the United States. And by the way, the, the opposition and the ruling party in Dominica ought to pay attention in the news and see what is happening as 63 new Republicans uh, took the reign today. They uh, took the oath to, and yet still the civility, you know, the, 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 the volume of civility that is there yes. versus what Dominica, like I was saying, 69,000 or 70,000, 21 constituencies, big government, big spending. There is no way Dominica can sustain that rhythm that it has taken. No way. And we are seeing what I hear. If all the allegations that I hear, and I believe some of them is true according to what I see and read, all our leaders will not give up power easily in Dominica. They will not give any kind of regard to the electoral process and think to clean up the, the, the list, and they're not going to do that. Anything they believe that is going to be detrimental to their re-election, it's not going to work for them. So Dominica is probably leading the former British colonies, mainly the Leeward and the Windward Islands, as far as corruption, bad governance in government. And I listen to, to some of the, the bishops and acolytes and apostles of the ruling party and to hear the kind of hate, the kind of hate and the, the, the divisiveness that they have now instilled in the people. It is really crazy. So I believe... I can draw some lines with Dominica and what is taking place today versus what we see taking place in Africa. Yes, I think the, the parallels are there to be made. And when you have um, people that, um, you know, proclaiming that they're going to remain in office until 2050, as against proclaiming that we are going to ameliorate um, unemployment or we're going to, uh, to revamp the agriculture sector, it, it's really cause for concern and for worry. But I'll tell you, um, Mr. Thompson, let me say to you, there is no doubt in anyone's mind the behavior of some of the key figures in the Dominica ruling party, Labour Party, there's no doubt in people's mind that these guys 
are there for the long haul. When you get into utilizing the defense or the police, and you, you have gotten them totally politicized, where this man who is the head of the police cannot think of anything else except he has to serve his leader, and then he forgets the Constitution and the oath he has taken to serve the people, then you are heading for problems. When you see you have leaders blatantly on the airwaves telling lies, knowing very well that they know what the truth is, but they would put out propaganda just to inflame and to make themselves look good, you know that country is in trouble. So from so go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. From what you what you're saying, Command Sergeant Major is if I hear you correctly, is that you've seen all of the telltale signs that you've seen in other countries and you've observed over the years in other countries where you have despotic leadership, you have um dictatorial leadership, you've seen all of those signs in Dominica. In and America. that is and that is worrying you. There's no difference. That's correct. Yeah. The the same signs in fact you can see you heard your prime minister said that he's gonna be there till 2050. 2050. Yeah. 2050. He's 40, so you add another 40, he'll be 80 plus years now. But not only that, when he stands and he tells lies constantly to the people, he says one thing today, or what we say in the military, you're talking on both sides of your neck. Uh, well, he's good at that. He would tell people the thing that he believed would make them feel good instead of telling them the truth. When that is happening, you have leaders just telling lies to the people and have some people just grab it and digest it, and you have problems. Dominica is facing, is going through a, a time when, I, I don't know, it's hard for me to think that Dominicans are going to get out of that situation because I listen to those guys even a year after election. Mr. Thompson, these guys are still campaigning like election is within the next six months. What does that tell you? It tells you everything, that these are people who are bent on hell to keep their positions and maintain the status quo. And that is troubling. I could not have said it better. Um, in case you're just joining us, we are talking there to retired uh, Sergeant, uh, Command Sergeant Major Ralph Alcender of the United States Army, who led uh, forces in Afghanistan and uh, was also served in Iraq, Haiti, and Somalia. He's uh, from the village of Granby, um, went to school there in Granby, and also attended the St. Mary's Academy before migrating to the Virgin Islands and then the United States. And we're discussing um, uh, war, we're discussing Dominica, we're discussing politics. And, and um, uh, Sergeant Major, you know, you raised some very, some very in in interesting topics of discussion. And I wanted to, to take a closer look at one of those you, with regards to, firstly, the, the, the police and the judiciary. I noticed you, you indicated that one of the things that, that dictators tend to do is that they interfere with the judiciary. Would, would you say what we've seen... They do that. Normally, you find these guys... Take, for instance, again, let's go back to Chavez. He just appointed... Some, some of the folks in the judicial system, judicial system that will be a part of his regime. We see Pakistan. We see it in Kenya. We see it in places where the first thing that leaders tend to do is to make sure that they put their strong men in the security apparatus. Then they get into the judicial system, and you can see even in our small island there, the, the people who they put in there, these folks 
care less about the Constitution. I wonder sometimes if they really read the Constitution and they understand the Constitution of Dominica, because they just blatantly ignore what the Constitution says. It, all it is, it's an SOP. It's a standing operating procedure how government should operate. That's how I look at the Constitution. And if you go line by line, you can never do wrong. The Constitution says that if you have well, if you are a citizen of another country, if you hold dual citizenship and that is done on your behalf while you are a grown man, you cannot be nominated. There are people who know that, and yet still they went on and get nominated and get elected, even though they did not meet the prerequisite. That is a blatant, uh, just ignoring the Constitution. Now, when these things are happening, look out. When you see they use all method to embezzle, to take money, to misappropriate. Look out. These are people who have just allowed the greed to take over, and then the real sense of governing is done. So Dominica, this is why Dominica is listed as one of the most corrupt islands in the region. I think if the leaders in Dominica were in Jamaica or Trinidad and doing exactly what they have done, they would be in prison. They would be in prison. There's no doubt in my mind. If these allegations are true about everything that is said about the leaders, the political leaders in Dominica, they would be behind bars in countries like Trinidad and I think even Jamaica. We are less progressive, and it is rather sad to say that, because in Dominica, the people tend to, if you steal and I can get the crumbs out of your loot, you buy me a couple of sheets of corrugated galvanite, I shall protect you regardless of the situation you find yourself in. That is the kind of message we convey to the outside world and to the region at large. I'm quite sure St. Lucians, Barbadians, Grenadians, they all know what is happening. Vincentians, what is taking place in Dominica? But, but like I say, we saw this thing take place in, in Latin America. We saw it in Africa, and it's unfortunate that our very small island is going through this, this crisis. It is very unfortunate indeed. I, I want to take you up on this in just a little bit, but I would like to tell our listeners, um, if you'd like to join in the conversation, you can do so. The number to call uh, is 301-327-6889, um, or you could also call 202-525-7231, or if you prefer, you could send us an email to radio at dominican.net, radio at dominican.net, and we'll be happy to relay your question to Command Sergeant Major Ralph Alcindor, retired. Um, Sergeant Major, what do you what do you think of the current situation where it is more than a year since we've had elections and uh, petitions were filed and, and courts are yet to hear those petitions? Now, this this probably and I'm quite sure you heard that the Chief Justice for the Eastern Caribbean, Mr. Judge Rollins, is he? Yeah, Judge Rollins. Yeah, he he knew that such situation. Listen, this is probably the the biggest travesty. It's, it's a laugh, really. It's a farce to hear that a country in such electoral turmoil, where the individuals who are now holding office are disqualified if whatever the allegations say is true, and yet still up till today, nothing has taken place. Now, this is another sign where you know that there's a lot of trouble ahead. When the courts refuse...
to expedite on cases that should be heard. Look, the Constitution clearly says within 21 days, any irregularities, anything that takes place during the election, you have 21 days to file a petition. Petition was filed. They met the criteria. Yet still here we are, 12 months later, nothing has been done. Instead, everything is being extended. It's prolonged. It's turned. And make no mistake, Thompson, that this goes higher than we think. This is not a coincidence that this case has not been settled or called or even approached. It is not a coincidence. It's interesting. Yes. It's a deliberate, this is a deliberate interference of the judicial system in Dominica. It is well, it, it is predetermined. You know, it, it, it's something that was planned, that this is what we're going to do. We're going to put it on the sidelines and whenever we get time and whatever. Meanwhile, someone is accused of holding an office that he's not qualified by means of his constitutional status. You see, he was holding the door. So when the courts are being manipulated, when they are controlled, when judges and lawyers can talk and magistrates can call each other on their spare time and decide what they're going to do and how they're going to do it, you are going to have serious problem in that country because that is the first pillar of democracy. When your judicial system is broken, when there is no trust, no credibility, then you can forget democracy because from there everything goes downhill. You see, and I always say Dominica should have an independent judicial system. You see what is taking place here in the United States. I don't know why our country cannot look at the United States and say, you know, let us learn. Let us learn to disagree in a, in a civil manner. Let us, let us learn to, to build. Let us not steal. Let us not fleece the very people we are milking. But that is what, in a, in a nutshell, is taking place in Dominica. Your court system is totally messed up, so you don't expect to have um, a, a quick hearing on the election petitions, when this thing should have already taken place something like nine months ago. Nine months ago. Yeah. Yeah. So then, Major, the other, the, other, the other part of this is the, is the police, and, and you, you kind of made mention of it earlier, but I wanted to put a scenario before you, and something that I've noticed. I, now, you are a military man. You know about conflict resolution, about inciting of conflicts and so on. But uh, what I've noticed in Dominica of late is, is anytime there is any, any hint of trouble, for example, if, um, uh, for example, in St. Joseph, the villagers were calling a protest action because they were going to build a, a, an AFSAL plant in the village that was, that was killing the fish. I was that demonstration, Thompson. That was 2009, I think 2000. it was October or early November when the people, I recall very well, Crazy T was down there reporting, Angelo, I remember very well. Now, this, I, I remember that the government said they had no clue. They did not know that Gadigan or whatever he is was going to build this and that. And again, St. Joseph folks, the people in the Layo area, they, they have a lot of questions to ask and uh, they deserve answers because they were told that, the government told them that they had no clue that this guy was going to do this and do that. And it turned out, here it is now, and they're dealing with the reality. I, I read of the pollution and all the toxic fumes and the dust and everything. Now, the sad thing is the people today are not the ones who are going to really feel the pain. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years 
down the road, folks are going to be sick. They're going to have lung problem or whatever. If the pollution that the guys say the people are experiencing, eventually it's going to have health problems. But again, the government, what, what kind of deal they have with these people? The guy's a Frenchman. Again, you have a French prime minister, so I can understand he probably give him a lot of concessionaries, you know. Well, in fact, in fact, I'm just just on on the record. We are, we are now we are now learning that that he was one of the people that paid four hundred thousand into the account, um, Mrs. Stevie, that is being contested okay. currently. See? Yeah, so, so so that's what we're talking about. You know, once you, you begin to mix um, politics and, and these kinds of, of, of bribery, it takes a toll because the government cannot uh, possibly stop the building of this AFSA plan. Whether all the people of St. Joseph will turn up dead tomorrow, they can't stop it because they've already been paid to, to do something about it. But, <laughs> yes, go ahead. I, 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 am saying, I am saying now that the people, but they still made a choice during the election. They had the time, the chance to to exercise their constitutional right and choose something and send a message to government and saying it is not right, it is unacceptable, in fact it is intolerable having people representing us and telling lies to us. We pay your salaries. The, the Dominican people need to stand, rise up and tell the leaders, uh, whoever is in power, that we are the ones who pay the fact that you get your money. We are the ones. If you go on our behalf in a foreign country and you plead for donation or whatever you get, it is not yours. You don't think you can spend 20 or 80 cents on every dollar and you keep 20 cents. That's not how it goes. That is highway robbery but but you have leaders who do those things i listened to someone who told me but the man got a lot of money from this and that i think he can get so well when you have that kind of mentality and that way of thinking where people think it's okay if you can get some and you spend it it's okay if you take some of what you get then we have a problem so it, 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 the, the, the problem in Dominica is, is, is all around. Every corner you look, I talk about the security and the way the police is so politicized now. That is probably the, one of the most troubling things in, in, in the country also, because police tend to do what they want. They're not going, there's no code of conduct that they're going to stick to. They will beat you up if they think they have the opportunity and the privilege and no one is going to get them. They, they do these things down there. You will have all kinds of problems when democracy is on shady ground. And I think our country is now on shady ground as far as its democracy going on. Well, it's good that you, you were calling this and that you were sounding the alarm that many of us, in fact, has raised in the past. Um, we, we are, in fact, getting our first um, um, question. This is coming from Yves Marie, who is writing in to radio at the Dominican.net. And a question for you is, what advice would you give to these young people in Dominica? What role or responsibility do you see Dominicans living abroad in changing the future of Dominica? The, the, uh, one of the first advice I try to tell young people, because I had the opportunity to go to the Grand Bay Boys to the Pierre Charles Elementary School and talk to the seniors, one of the things I have to tell them, I always tell them, is that keep hope alive in a sense that do a lot of reading, pursue your education. It is so important. We've had great Dominicans all over the world. In fact, uh, the president of Dominica came from Grand Bay, so it's no coincidence. Dominicans are very smart. They can articulate. They can learn. If the young people stay focused and get themselves 
education, get informed. You may not have a college degree, but you can pursue, and you would be amazed how much you can gain. Now, as far as those overseas, I have always spoken to my buddies, those that I have met, and tell them, you know, I always try to equate with Grand Bay and say, listen, guys, what can we do to help? I wish I could have used, I had resources at my disposal to give scholarship to the folks in Grand Bay. I always am a strong advocate. In fact, my cousin and I, we, we talk about that, where I could give scholarship to go to school, you know, the bright ones, those that you see, there's going to be a bright future. My advice to the young folks in Dominica, stay focused and get a good education. Mm-hmm. Get a good education. Do not let the, the environment twist your mind. Don't be mind-twisted in doing things that you thought this is the only way to go. Employment, unemployment may be high. That still can't stop you to take books. Stay informed via the, the radio, the television, and, and things of that sort. I know some of the things are limited in Dominica, and there are many things I see up here. Sometimes I wonder, you know, try to build a library in Dominica and have books, let the kids read, and all of that. But as far as the advice is, get a good education. And, Get a good education. and the second part of the question was, um, is there a role for, for Dominicans um, overseas to actually play yes, in the future is. of Dominica? Yes, there is. Um, and the role, uh, I'm sorry, I forgot that. And the role that Dominicans overseas can play, we know for a fact that many Dominicans, young Dominicans who left and go overseas to school, after they get educated, some of them did not return. Now, staying in touch with Dominica is very important. Yes, there are times when, on, when employment overseas becomes so attractive that you do not want to go back home. The role model you need to, in order to represent your country wherever you are, is try to achieve some kind of status. I know Dominicans who went to Canada, who went to the United States and Great Britain, and they are lawyers. They are great lawyers. They are doctors and some scientists. They are Dominicans all over the globe who have gone. Unfortunately, not all of them go back or try to get known that other young folks will look and emulate, look up to and say, you know, this is my role model and this is what I would like to be. But there are Dominicans who have achieved, have done great things overseas. And I'll tell you one, I have a son who left Dominica not too long ago. Now he teaches. He's a professor in New Jersey. My other son is an officer in the Army. He, he got his master's. And I am one individual who believes the kids must have an education. That if, if anything else you need to have is to know how to read. Because everything in the world today, it's all electronic. It's all about reading. It's all about having common sense. Now, you want role models? We do have people overseas who did very well. And I think these folks ought to visit home and get involved and talk to the kids, get that kind of exposure so the kids can look up to and say, you know what, I think I can do it too. I think I have what it takes to be a scientist. I think I have what it takes to be a lawyer in America. So it's going to be difficult. But they need the exposure. But the first thing first is have a very good background as far as education goes. This is very important. Uh, and But one of the things I've noticed, though, in Dominica is that 
I, I would I would like to think uh, differently, but it seems to me that the, the whole education system in Dominica is really not what it used to be. We have kids, for example, living in school who can't read, you know, basic cannot function. And, and that to me is a real, is a real problem. And, and I would like to see a lot more emphasis, a, a, a lot more energy has been placed in, in, in attacking that, that, that problem. Because that is so critical in ensuring that those of us who leave Dominica can, in fact, um, do something with their lives. Um, now, there's another question um, coming to you again from the internet radio at the Dominican.net. Uh, and Janet, um, first name, Janet is asking, um, would you, given everything that's going on in Dominica at this time, would you encourage overseas Dominicans to go back to Dominica? Well, this, well, this is a very good question. Now, encouraging people to go back is one thing. However, it is another thing to convince people to go back home. Uh, with the way things are now in Dominica, I don't think there is any any attraction, any attractive uh, where where people will say, you know, I, I, I need to go home. Right now, if someone is living overseas, take for instance in England, in, in Toronto, in America, the lifestyle and the standard of living is far. You cannot compare with Dominica because that individual... He goes to Dominica, he's going to look at lots of things and compare. He's going to compare prices. It is just something that is in man to compare prices. Now, to convince someone to come home, it, it, it's, it's difficult, simply because you're going to have to do a whole lot of convincing. And this is something personal decisions are made through the people and how, what they want, what would they want to be. I don't know if I would be able to encourage. I can just tell someone, hey, I think the time has come for us to go and contribute. But again, I, I, I did start this conversation in saying I shall never give up my U.S. citizenship. <laughs> now, I, I have to be quite candid with you. Yes. And, and whoever asked the question, it is not an easy thing to encourage people to go home simply because the haves and the have not. Well, the standard of living that that person, I cannot go and encourage someone to leave Toronto and go to Dominica. First, what is he going there to do at this time? How can he contribute to his country? We should be able to have a plan and not let anyone encourage, but something coming from the heart. I personally would like to go to Dominica one day and contribute to Granby. There is no doubt in my mind. My family will tell you I talk about it all the time. Now... That is my own personal decision about having someone encourage them to do so. I think it's a tough cookie. It is a tough cookie. I'm sorry. I don't know if anybody would encourage, can encourage. I, I, yeah, I think so, it's a personal decision. What right. do you think, Mr. Thompson? No, I tend to agree with you. I tend to agree that it has to be something that, that people have to, to make up their own minds as to what they want to do. Because in, in a way, you get to a certain lifestyle outside of Dominica. You get used to it, exactly. And then you go back to Dominica. And, and I believe, you know, I think the, the, the most difficult thing in all of this is the political situation. I think it makes it it makes it worse, you know, in the sense that um, people are hearing all of these things out of Dominica. They're hearing about the, the fact that people are afraid to talk. If they talk, they'll be victimized. Um, you're talking about escalating crime in the country. And, you know, people say we should not talk about these things, but I believe that you don't, you don't sweep those things under the carpet. You need to talk about no, those shouldn't. issues. You need to address them. Well, I am them, an activist who will go to Dominica, even not to stay, because I have a base here in Atlanta, and I do want to keep connected with Dominica. I will eventually 
be able to go there and spend much time and contribute and teach as much as I can. Now, can somebody else who is much younger than I am do that? I don't know, because I meet folks, I'm Dominicans that I have met, and I talk to them, some of them, they're professional, and they have, they tend to show some kind of, they're not too keen about getting ready to go home, especially the political atmosphere that Dominica is, the uncertainty as it is now. I, I have told me once that, hey, what's the sense I go and invest my money, especially when the, the, the utilities are very high. They would, utilities would be taking much of my interest or my profit if I were to do this or do that. What is the sense when the taxes are so high? And you have to compare. That's why we have a lot of outsourcing here in the United States, simply because there are other countries that is more attractive to the business, to the manufacturing, and a higher profit, a higher profit yield. So, in Dominica, I don't know. Yeah. Well, yeah, it is. It is a tough one. But one thing I, I should say though is that we we act, we really need. A, this, this influx of, of minds to combine with those at home to really move the country forward, I believe. No, I, I, I totally agree. I totally... But, but uh, again, you're dealing with a very unique set of people. We saw Dominica move from 81,000 to 69,000, 70,000. 10,000 people. I can tell you in my village, something of homes, the whole family... Mother, father, everybody went to the Virgin Islands, and guess what? They are dying over there. These older people, instead of going back, you would think that they would want to go back home and die and be buried. They die in the Virgin Islands in St. Thomas and buried up there. I know of a whole lot of people from Granby. And that in itself speaks volume of what is taking place in Granby or in Dominica versus the lifestyle in the United States Virgin Islands. I would rather go back to Dominica to live than to go to the Virgin Islands if I were to leave this country. I'm telling you the truth. However, there are lots of people who beg to differ. Yes, and then, you, you know, and, and, yeah. and I guess part of it is, is as you said, it's just the difficulty of, of, of... And I think that there is so much that that government can do to create that enabling environment for people to want to go let, to let Dominica. Let me just give you something that you can, you can really think of. Take, for instance, I know people who, who left London went to Dominica, built their homes, and just about every year these people tend to go back up to England for health needs, the health care. That's just something we can ponder on, and that is to give you, to tell you how much it is difficult to have people to come home and say, home is home now, my last days. These folks go back to England. They go back to Puerto Rico. They go elsewhere seeking better health care. Why? Because Dominica is not up to par to what they were used to when they were overseas. Mm -hmm. Now, that in itself is another problem. So you can see why it is very difficult now for Dominica to even attract its very, very people who left years ago. Yes, certainly. are you with me? Yes, I'm with you. I'm with you, and and we certainly appreciate this 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 difficulties and all of these um this roadblocks. That's why I believe you know there's needed to create enabling environment, and one would hope one would hope that, that that the government you know getting the money of the people would devote its time to thinking of those things and to working on those things as against devoting its time to seeing how it can remain in power for fifty years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's 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 I don't know. It's just going to be. It's going to be tough. 
it's going to be tough. Yes, well, on, on this note, um, Command Sergeant um, Ralph um, Alcindor, let me thank you very much for, for joining us for the entire hour tonight on this week's interview. A very fascinating discussion. For those of you who, who missed um, some or all of it, we will be making it available online through our podcast so you can get it within the next day or so. We will be posting this very, very important discussion with uh, certainly a patriot of Dominica, someone who loves Dominica, who spent uh, many years in the United States uh, at the highest level of the U.S. military and having some very profound thoughts on what's going on in Dominica. Any, any final words, um, Commander Sergeant Major? Sure, thank you for having me on, and I hope that if there's something they can learn that even Dominicans coming from Grand Bay can go overseas and can change things in certain way. Here I was in Afghanistan. I never thought I would be in Afghanistan or in Iraq. Dominicans, regardless where you are, you can go and you can achieve whatever you want. The stars are always the limit. If there's anything to learn is that your brain power is life and well. Go out there and you can do good things for yourself, but first start at home. Excellent. Well, these are very important and interesting lessons. And let me again thank you for, for being with us this evening. And, and certainly, I'm sure that this um, this podcast will become very, very popular uh, as people learn about it and find out um, the very important things you had to say tonight. So again, I thank you, the Command Sergeant um, Ralph Alcindor. Thank you very much, my man, and take care now. Good night. Good night. Okay, we were just talking there to... Command Sergeant Major Ralph Alcindor, who served, uh, led a battalion of soldiers there in Afghanistan, uh, served at the very, very highest level, becoming the highest enlisted officer in the U.S. Army, uh, commanding several hundreds and scores of men there in Afghanistan. He also served in Iraq, in Haiti, and in Somalia. The military man is originally from the village of Granby. And he went to primary school in Grand Bay, spent his formative years in Dominica, attended the St. Mary's Academy, and he left in 1969 for the U.S. Virgin Islands, joined the U.S. military in 1977, and rose through the ranks. And a very colorful, um, highly decorated um, military officer. And um, certainly it was a pleasure, pleasure talking talking to him this evening um let me just uh, go over the list of uh, of decorations that um the command sergeant received during his outstanding years of service in the u.s military he was the recipient of the meritorious service medal with uh, three oak leaf clusters he received the army Con commendation medal with four oak leaf clusters clusters he received the Army Achievement Medal with two Oak Leaf Clusters. He was the Southwest Asia Service Medal with one star. He received the Kuwait Liberation Medal, the Armed Forces Expeditionary Medal with one star, Humanitarian Service Medal, Overseas Service Ribbon Number Four, the Joint Unit Meritorious Unit Achievement Award, Meritorious Unit Commendation Medal, the Good Conduct Medal, the National Defense Service Medal. He received the Aircraft CBM Badge and the Air Assault Badge. So very distinguished military man there from the village of uh, Grand Bay, spending more than 20 years in the military. And he was our guest tonight on uh, This Week in Interview. Mm -hmm.